Hello, my name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit for 31 of Porsche Digital. And I'm very delighted to be here in the room together with Tim Leberrecht, the co-founder, co-CEO and co-creator of the House of Beautiful Business. This is a brand new episode of the second season of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. We are together here in Berlin. Where exactly, Tim? We are at Tucholsky Palace, as we call it, in, in the center of Berlin. We're sitting in a lounge and we're about to listen to another episode of the Next Visions podcast series. This one is about intersectionality and it's a conversation between Nonhanla Makuyana. She's a co-founder of Decolonializing Economics and Richard Teverson, a British actor whom some of you might know from Downtown Abbey or The Crown, but also from many, many, many theater plays. Richard is also a coach, so he helps companies with their communication skills. And Nonhlanla, or Noni as she goes by, as she will hear in the conversation, is an educator, creative and new economics organizer. Uh, she has founded uh, Decolonializing Economics, that is a grassroots collective working to build a new economy movement that is rooted in racial justice and decolonial struggle. And we'll hear them talk about intersectionality. That sounds like a very interesting topic, so let's tune into it. So hi, my name is Noni. Hi, Actually, Noni. my name is Nonchansa Pinky. My middle name is Pinky. I always... I don't know why my name is that, but um, I'm an activist and an organizer and just like doing change stuff. And my main thing is I'm really interested in like how systems were shaped or like the history of systems. So like, especially around like how the economy was built. So I run this, I co-run this organization called Decolonizing Economics. And a lot of it that we do is like teach people about like the history of why things were like how capitalism was built or, you know, how white supremacy is like a driver for a lot of bad things in the world as with capitalism. And we like work with like grassroots groups. So at the moment, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in how like black communities um, exist outside the state and support themselves. So I've just finished doing some research on like uh, something that I called like black hunger. And it was about how like the creation of hunger as like um, a, a tool or legacy of white supremacy so like how for, like famines follow colonizers so like the was it the bengal famine and like there's still famines that keep on happening and it's also to do with like how climate change also means like food security is like yeah. not like as accessible and yeah so i just went around and like i spoke to people black people who were growing food in the uk and like teach other people how to grow food and it was really nice so kind of that's basically what i do what about wow. you Richard? That sounds really interesting, and I'm really excited to hear more about that. Nonny, my name's Richard Teverson. Um, we haven't met before, apart from in this no. weird virtual space, so it's really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I've been an actor for about 22 years now, and in my sort of acting world of work, I work in film, telly, theatre, voiceover wherever they'll have me, essentially. Theatre-wise, I've worked in the West End of London, the National Theatre, things like that and film and telly uh, telly i've done things like the crown that's on at the moment and downton abbey and i did the film of brideshead revisited so you can sort of see a trend there of period drama there is a um a line that i fit into i suppose uh mm -hmm. but also alongside my acting in the last 16 or 17 years i've been working in business and i've been helping people communicate more effectively. That's the plan. And I think what the acting brings to that is because as an actor, and we could talk about this more, you 
you have to analyze how someone is behaving to try and understand why they're acting in a certain way. And so I have to understand who I am before I can do that. And then I can try and play other people. So it helps me make that imaginative leap, I suppose. And so that communication work is around role play, do a lot of role play with clients where I play the CEO, a client, a team member, and then have a conversation with someone where they're themselves. And then I give them feedback. So I'm making notes all the way through about the language they're using, um, their body language, their tone of voice, things that are working well and things that uh, are working less well, I suppose. And that work, it runs really in parallel to my acting work. So there's two careers and the type of clients I work with, I work with a lot of law firms, pharmaceutical companies, uh, three of the big four accountancy firms um, and consultancy firms. So yeah, it's, it's very diverse. It's interesting. It keeps me busy most of the time. So yeah, that's me. That's like really interesting because I was doing research for this yesterday and I went on your show reel. Oh, right. So I watched your clips oh, no. from Downton Sorry. Abbey and I was like, whoa. And I was like also interested to uh, also find out as well about, because you do, I saw a lot of like period dramas as well. Mm. And I'm interested, like, how do you prepare for that? Like, how do you prepare to go backwards um, in the past and be a person from the past? Um, I love research. I mean, all acts are different. Some people like to literally just read, learn the lines and, and do it and follow their instincts. And that can be really successful. But for me, I have a level of comfort when I've done some research. I studied history uh, at Durham Uni. And so I love that part of it. And I've also played quite a lot of real people. So I love the research around that. So for me, trying to be succinct, <laughs> Because it's period drama, I try and look at the history of the period. I try and look at the mm -hmm. um, social dynamics of the time, what's happening. Often, because I've played a lot of men in their sort of in 1920s, 30s, most of those men would have been in the trenches, mm -hmm. often in an officer capacity, because I tend to get cast in that sort of role. But it's still really interesting to think about what what's happened to them before they've got to that point. And then you just have to use the script and then find out what's happening and who the, what your relationships are with the other people. So it's it's really interesting. You get to study all sorts of things. I've sat in in the um, public gallery at the court number one at the Old Bailey because I've played a barrister and it was a real life trial that we put on stage. So I was in the real space where that happened. So mm -hmm. you get to watch barristers and how they behave. And you're looking for, yeah, how they move physically, but also how they sort of inhabit their world, I suppose. So just trying to use your imagination to imagine what it's like to be another person, which which I love doing. Yeah, That's so interesting. Oh, well, bless you. It, it's, yeah, I find it really interesting. I'm very lucky to still be doing it after sort of over 20 years. So how did you get involved in your work? So actually, I was born in Zimbabwe and I moved here when I was 10. So I moved to the UK when I was 10 and mm. I was just like living in like Sussex as like the only black person in school. And that was <laughs> an experience. Whereabouts like, in um, Sussex? So like near, uh, so I went to school in Crawley, right, in like West Sussex, like Crawley, like Hawley, Burgess Hill yeah. area, if you know where that is. Yeah. Um, so then I was there, I went to school and it was an experience and then I went to uni and I just randomly decided to go to SOAS, which was like this school of Oriental and African mm. studies. And at that time I wasn't very political um, because I think like when you're existing in overwhelmingly white spaces, you kind of don't want to tap too much into your politicalness because there's like a lack of safety and a lack of being able to actually explore those things with other people who mm. mirror that experience for you. So yeah, and then I just went to SOAS and I just wasn't really interested in economics. Like I was just like, mm, I don't really care about that. And it's actually interesting you were saying the stuff about like embodiment, because I think for me, I actually got into my work from a place of how can we create like better relationships with each other mm. and like how relationships are actually based from 
like a holistic understanding of people. Yeah. And the histories behind those people as well. So that's kind of derailing. I'm a derailer. But um, so then <laughs> I actually, I started working after uni, I started working for this NGO. And it so, was like- Sorry to interrupt. Did you, did you read economics then at SOAS? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Which is the random thing. I did international relations. Right. And it's just about like patterns and history and like just patterns. I'm interested in patterns. And then I worked in this NGO randomly. I met this person who was like, oh, we've got this job. Do you want to apply? And I applied and I got it. And I was like, random, I'm not good at economics. And I just spent like the first year just there, like, I just don't understand what's happening. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this job because I don't understand. But then actually I realized like, that's the problem. Like everyone should be able to understand economics. Like in the work that we do, we explain the economy as like the management of home, which yeah. is like the management of relationships within a home. So if you have a system or like you've designed a home and the people inside the home can't actually understand and participate in it, Mm. that's kind of a problem and when I was working in like the white NGO space I found it really difficult because like you know black lives don't matter in those spaces and um, social change is like done in really small incremental bits but for Mm. me I just feel like we should just rip it all apart it just doesn't work so I don't really have time to be like arguing about whether like the way people communicated it is good or not like I just was like this is a really unfair system and there's no real like racial justice analysis in it and then I started just like going around and connecting with other like people of color in those spaces and just finding out like what other people were doing and what they thought of like the way that we analyze change Mm. and I just met some amazing incredible people whose work is just invisibilized and just not given credit and then as a part of that I met like my co like the partner who I run decolonizing economics with her name's Gopi Bola she's amazing and like she just is like she writes about like public health and economics about climate change and economics about racial justice and economics and Mm. in the new economics space it's just economics and nothing else matters it's just rational it's objective but then for us like it's an embodied experience like you know the fact that black people go hungry the fact that black people Mm. don't have housing it's an embodied experience and I really liked what you were saying as well like how you know, thinking about how people communicate the way they do and how because of their own lived experiences and how they inhabit their own bodies and go through the world like that. So I'm really interested in that in the moment, like the relationship aspect of how the economy is built, because it's about like extraction currently, like you take away from people, you take away from neighborhoods, you take away from, it's just extractive. Like I'm really interested in like generative economics at the moment. And yeah, yeah. I I think, Picking up on your point about the identity within that, I think mm-hmm. I think we just all need to be, speaking particularly from a white perspective, we just have to be inquisitive to try and understand. So using that sort of actor's mindset of understanding what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, of course, I have no idea what it's like to have a different skin colour. I just, as, as imaginative as I can be about that, I'm never going to know what it feels like. So I suppose what I hope people are going to do and, and I hope this change that is coming more and more now is really going to uh, enact change. It's that people just try and go into that imaginative space and just try mm-hmm. and listen and understand. Because I think what what I'm sensing is, I, I suppose, speaking from a white male perspective, I think a lot of white men uh, are feeling frustrated. I think they're feeling confused and I think they're feeling lost a bit and i'm i'm not necessarily I'm, I'm not absolutely defending the structures that we have at the moment but i'm trying to understand why people react in a certain way and mm-hmm. so without mentioning any names you see certain people in the media in the uk and globally who are kicking out against change and i think it's because they see the shifting sands and i 
I just wish they would take some time to understand and to mm -hmm. try and think about the history of it. And I've tried to do more research recently into black history because well, recently, in fact, the last job I did, we finished this play just before lockdown, just before, the week before the theatres closed. That's really lucky. <laughs> yeah, really lucky. Uh, but it was also really lucky because it was, it was a brilliant play with a black British theatre company called Eclipse. And... Mm -hmm. I was the, for most of the time, certainly in virtually all the rehearsals and certainly all the performances, I was the only white man in that group, whether it was the acting group or the artistic and stage management team. And for me, that was, well, it was a, it was privileged. I don't mean that in a patronising way. But when I live in a white majority country as a white man, it's very easy to just keep going because everything just feels normal and fine. And this is my lived experience. And I was very fortunate in that I went to a boarding school. Uh, it nearly bankrupted my parents, but I have a lot of privilege with that. And so to just find myself in a different setting was really valuable. And I just thought now's the the best time to, it's a cliche, but we use it in training. You know, we've got two ears and one mouth. So ideally mm -hmm. we should be doing double the listening. And I thought now's oh, the I time. Now, now's the time for me to be doing double the listening compared to my speaking. And what I found really, really interesting about hearing little bits about everybody's identities is that, that from the black people in the company, stories of racism, that these are from black British people. And these are stories that, from my experience, seems to be shared amongst their community. And I don't know where that comes from. My, my sense would be about protection or that those stories have been shared and not been heard before, potentially. So as a result, they're not shared. But for me, that was a real honour to hear those stories and to recognise, you know, sometimes daily instances of microaggressions and understanding what that meant and trying to understand a little bit about what that feels like. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. And I'll stop talking about this play in a minute. But why the play was interesting was it was set in two time zones and it was set in 1863. There was a character called Sarah Bonetta, Princess Sarah Bonetta. I don't know if you've read about her. And she was, as a girl, was captured by a neighbouring tribe in uh, what is now Monday, Nigeria. And then a British sea captain happened to be there and he rescued her because there were some stories that she was going to be sacrificed. I use the word mm -hmm. rescue in uh, inverted commas. Uh, and then he brought her back to England. She became a celebrity. Queen Victoria sort of took her under her wing and she became this... Do you know, I think I've heard of this. Right. There's like lots of paintings of her yeah. as well. Yeah, she was incredibly famous. She was a superstar. And, and so the first act of the play is about her and her coping with microaggressions in the Victorian period. So I was playing a an ostensibly a good man. He was a missionary, although he's exporting his religion to a different culture. But he was supporting the black characters in the play. Um, and then in the middle act was modern day. And I, oh, I'm giving you too much information about this. I'm derailing like you. Uh, but it was it was really interesting because you basically have a black British couple living in the north mm -hmm. of England and their white neighbours come around and everything's fine. Everything's lovely. And then you can hear the undertones and the mm. essentially the racism, although it's served up in a very middle class, everything's fine, but little microaggressions. And it turns out mm. that the black couple have adopted a white child and the mm -hmm. police have been called because the white couple didn't realise when the screaming That's child wild. and they thought the black man was doing something to the screaming child. So they called the police. And That's so, awful. Yeah, it was it really, it's really powerful. And then the final act, you go back to the Victorian period, you meet Queen Victoria and, and Princess Sarah Bonetta. And it's it's a wonderful play by Janice Ocko. Mm -hmm. And I just learnt loads because we looked at the historical aspect of colonialism and slavery. And you see mm -hmm. some of the impact in that period, but then you also see the impact down the line. 
so i love that like and it's so interesting as well because like that's my least favorite thing i know it's like weird hearing that like on like podcasts or whatever but like my least favorite <laughs> thing about british society yeah. is just the whole let's be nice but then also be really racist <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah. avoid that and like it's like you know i was nice to you so why would you think i was racist but then also it's like yeah. the historical aspect of it is like and lately i've been really thinking about like generational trauma mm. And I've been reading some stuff and it was like talking about how, for example, like black people, generational trauma is like imposter syndrome, you know, mm. it's the feeling that your experiences just don't matter and are not right. valid. And like, you know, the amount of like mental health issues that are faced by like the like yeah. black community. But like for white people, the generational trauma is actually not reckoning with the history yeah. of violence and of like colonialism of, you know, there's a lot of like violence that is really tied to like British history and it's like interesting as well because it's like you're nice but then that niceness is also like sometimes that it's like stopping you from actually like being present with people and actually experiencing that discomfort and being able to verbalize it instead it's just like I'm being nice and we're all having fun but are we? I agree. I think I, I think the benefit of being nice is that's what helps build a society because we all have to agree on certain Mm-hmm. levels you know you don't hurt someone you don't kill someone all those sorts of things but equally thinking about the chat that we were going to have that society has been built largely from a white male perspective so there are those parameters have been put down by a certain group of people so i absolutely recognize that because then the niceness can be used to shut people up mm. so it's like yes thank you we've heard your point but we don't need to hear any more of it um, and i think that's that's really interesting and what you're seeing is that if, if people aren't heard, then they need to create more noise. Well, mm-hmm. you know, over uh, the world history, you know, you end up with a violent struggle because the political motive hasn't worked or the political yeah. mechanisms haven't worked. They mm-hmm. haven't been heard. Yeah. So, um, and like, I genuinely think, right, like, it's because I think that's the history that like people should create more noise. But yeah. I know so many people who are creating so much noise and who are doing amazing things and who yeah. are like actually changing the system but then through my experience of like being a black young like queer person in these spaces like no matter like what I do or what I say is actually heard like I've been in parliament you know I've just been in spaces where genuinely like whatever I say it doesn't even matter and I can be the most radical person or I could be the least radical person but like a lot of it doesn't matter and for me actually comes up a lot as being tone policed of being told that (laughs) my experience wasn't actually like that and it's like I was there (laughs) I was me (laughs) when we were having that conversation and it's interesting as well because like um lately especially with like the whole climate change stuff for example there's so many young black activists like for example there's some at the advocacy academy in like the UK who are like changing stuff and doing Mm -hmm. the work but because of the constant and especially in the UK like the invisibilization of black history is on another scale like it's wild like you just it's as if none like black people haven't been here and didn't actually build the UK and it's interesting because it's like we're being told by like the white male society to make more noise but actually I think what should be happening is the white male society to just give up power because it's like you can just make as much noise but then people should be actually 
giving power, like giving up power and like recognizing where like they start recognizing that this is a system that they have built and for example and also to be honest i think it's also something to do with like because we're talking also about intersectionality so mm-hmm. like this i went to see my family last week and i had this huge argument with my uncle about like economic policy huge and he just was not having it my uncle doesn't like this is my work and this is something that i do every day and my uncle who doesn't do those things and doesn't actually know was telling me that I didn't know and I think it's also to do with like maleness as well like how are we interrogating like the patriarchy in those conversations like you know my uncle he's a very sweet man and I love him but when it comes to arguments you don't know everything and that's okay you know and I feel like there's an eye for my hope at the moment in terms of like this really change or transformation that's happening right now and also thank god to coronavirus because I think people have had to stay at home and think about them and be really experiencing their own mental health and like how they actually go about into the world like I think what we need to have is men or like just people in power actually recognizing when they don't know I I think you're absolutely right and I think picking up on the point there about people need to understand I think people the starting point like I said two ears one mouth you've got to be doing double the listening Mm -hmm. because I absolutely hear you when you say you just want to tear down that power structure the reaction in people who are currently in power is panic and fear. And that always drives resistance to change um, or fuels racism because people are scared. And I'm absolutely not saying that you need to pussyfoot around. No way. It's just I try and understand from a white male perspective, although I'm gay, so I have a slightly outsider's viewpoint, is that people, they just push back. We just need to encourage them to listen more, basically. Um and be more open. And and I, I think what I find really sad is that is the education system has to change. Uh, and obviously 100%. I say that. I'm not an educator. So if any teachers are listening, they may think, yeah, easy for you to say. But essentially, I suppose it comes from government policy. Because at school, uh, I loved my history, which is why I ended up reading it at university. But my my sort of residual memory is that the British Empire was a wonderful thing. The sun they never sets. They made trains. Yeah, the sun never set on the British Empire. There was always sunlight on the British Empire. It was a great thing. And then the slavery aspect was, and we were the first major country to end slavery. So I left school, and I, I left school in sort of the late early 90s, is the sense of everything was wonderful about it. So yes, slavery was not great, but we ended it. And and yeah, there, there was some good stuff. So the West African patrol was a patrol against slavery once the British Empire had abolished it. But of course, that was also partly to protect their trade routes, and they didn't want anyone else making money out of human beings once they'd stopped. And Did I'm you know they wild. compensated slave owners as yeah. well? Like, that's yeah. just wild. And apparently the amount that they compensated is the amount that they paid banks, like, in 2010 after the whole financial yeah, crash. Yeah. It's like, it's wild, like, trillions of pounds, but continue. And No, no, well, look, it's important that, because the interest payments apparently only finished in 2015. So, so black British taxpayers up till 2015 were paying money that went to pay off the debt from paying off the slaveholders. The, the people who were enslaved received nothing. So there's a big discussion there about reparations and that that has to be had. But I suppose what I'm saying is, is that the history, and I think hopefully it's changing in schools, is you have to look at all aspects of the empire. Mm-hmm. Yes, there were good aspects, but essentially it was one country going in and dominating another country or many countries and drawing borders that weren't there beforehand and exploiting any natural resources and wealth. And that has an economic impact on those countries today because we extract it. 
Yeah. Uh, and and like, we told we told people their language wasn't good enough, their their religion wasn't good enough, their way of dressing wasn't good just enough. Everything, and you need, just everything, yeah. just change all of it. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. throw it away. It's gone. It's finished. We don't need it. <laughs> it's so messed up. Like, so a couple of years ago, I worked with these young people who genuinely are wanting to change the curriculum but then there's a like a recognition the curriculum is not going to change but anyway these kids decided that they wanted to do their own curriculum because you can't trust your teachers or like and especially like there's some stuff about like teacher training because of the cuts mm. to um universities and to um, schools and stuff teacher training has actually been concentrated so like teachers have to cover like a lot more stuff with less time so it's actually harder for teachers to actually be as invested in their work because of the pressures of also like being carers as teachers or you, there's a lot of stuff austerity cuts that's another thing but um basically these kids then also occupied parliament square and we basically did like a school lesson like a decolonial school lesson um to teach other kids who could just come and it was like I don't know, like I'm at the moment, I'm just really interested in how we can take power away from those institutions. So like one of them is like the supplementary school movement, which was like has been done for centuries, not even centuries, like for the last like, I think like since the 1950s, 60s by like mm. black parents who were just like, I'm scared to take my kid to start like to school, where like they're going to be told that their history is shit, <laughs> like their yeah. like language doesn't matter. And like these parents basically just set up their own schools after schools and like those supplementary schools then also challenge police brutality and like we don't hear about that and this is like huge uk history mm -hmm. like it's huge and like there's so much like in archives about like this great movement called like the black parents movement and like it's interesting because like people are now like calling for like you know decolonizing the curriculum but it's also like mm -hmm. this is something that has been happening for a really long time and it's just like how the institutions are then actually picking up those things but i really liked something that you said earlier also about like visioning like how can we vision different things and you were talking about like when you can when you're speaking to people and helping mm. them to like i don't know to question and to look towards like the positive or like the future and like how things can be different and like i'm interested to see how you're doing that as well in terms of like being a white man and like how communicating with other white men as well well i think I, I'm ashamed to admit that uh, for a long time I would see something about Black History Month and I'd think, great, fantastic, that's really, really important. Nothing to do with me, but really important. And how wrong was I? And it's only in the last sort of few years, and particularly actually working on this play four, five, six months ago, realising how important black history is because it's my history. I'm not a black person, but it's my history because I'm part of Britain, which has an empire, and I live in a fantastically multicultural and diverse country. So I think it's important, just like I think gay history is everybody's history, and people should be interested in that. And you can't force people to be interested, but you have to encourage people and engage them in, I don't want to say that you have to make concessions, but you have to find ways of engaging with people, essentially. I think it's coming on white people to have discussions with people to challenge casually racist language, which you can hear, which could sound nice, like you said, do not let friends get away with saying things just off the cuff because there's nobody of colour there or whatever that is. Just encourage people. And, I, and I've heard, I've never had so many discussions about race and racism in this country, basically since I did the play, but basically since the Black Lives Matter movement had another resurgence. And I'm really excited about that. And I think people just need to talk about it and discuss it. And people 
should be okay to talk about their fears because there's shifts and but their fears they're irrational fears but the only way you can address them is by helping them express them and talk through them because otherwise people hang on to things so if we take it away from race and we just have change in businesses and organizations wherever i've known from working with people i often get called into businesses around change programs and there's always resistance because people are used to things working in a certain way, whether it's a certain IT system, whether it's a way of management, whether it's a way of giving feedback. People are used to something and they don't want to change. Mm -hmm. And so there's resistance. But then you add on to that race and identity, which is the core of who we are, which we haven't really been too specific about yet. But I mean, my feeling about identity is it's it's the core. It's it's your gender. It's your sexuality. It's your political thoughts your race all those things are there and that's the core of who we are and whatever the change is whether it's around race or politics or whatever we hang on to things and we've mm. seen that over the world but particularly from a british perspective we saw it around the brexit debate and without getting political we really shouldn't do that but it became such an entrenched debate the most people, I'd say, some people were prepared to hear arguments or potentially switch sides, but most people became leavers or they became remainers and they hung on to that. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they just did a lot of evidence gathering to reimpose their own position and to their own belief because it makes you feel good because you think you're right. And it, it meant so much to everybody on both sides that we've become so entrenched and those divisions are still there and we'll wait and see what happens at the end of the year with any deal but they could flare up again. And, and I think that goes to your core identity. So that fear is there, that fear of change. And it's how we address that when we when we look at race or intersectionality. Mm. And I should be honest, intersectionality, I knew very little about. So I'm really interested in hearing more about it from you. I've done some mm. reading, but I want to hear more. So I think for me, intersectionality is the idea that like all identities, like you are not just one thing, all your identity markers are create like a very compounded and very specific experience for you so if I was like black and straight that would be a whole different thing but I'm black and queer and that's a whole different thing you know and you know black and working class or like white and working class like those are all different experiences but then still those experiences are very like valid and like you have a very different experience of life as well because of it and like for me in like for example what we do at decolonizing economics intersectionality for me looks like understanding that I can't just look at the impacts of the economy based on like class it also has to do with disability has to do with like transness it has to do with gender and also the idea that like your experiences of housing as a black trans person are drastically different to um you know like a white cis person's experiences of housing and how and I think like going back to history, because we're both history nerds here, like the idea like <laughs> that we speak about like how white supremacy is an actual form of like body policing. So it mm. basically says that if you're fat, you're not okay. If you're disabled, you're not okay. If you're black, you're not okay. And like, it's a hierarchy of which bodies matter and which bodies mm. don't. And I like, I treat intersectionality. I use intersectionality as a tool in my life of being able to actually 
listen and respond to people's experiences outside of mine and be mm. like, ah, you know, we might be the same, but like actually you have, you know, this background versus the, this other background. But, yeah. and I find it really like useful, like speaking in terms of like intersectionality as well. And it's like a way in terms of like understanding system of understanding how systems then impact specific people in different ways. So, and I think it's a lot in like, cause both of us work in like, you know, business or like change, lots mm. of um businesses or organizations just want an easy answer so it's like we want to change this yeah. okay let's do this training but also understanding intersectionalities and understanding that it's very complex to come up yeah. with solutions that actually fit everyone and it takes time yeah. and it takes dedication and it takes like commitment to actually understanding the complexities of how we our identities like exist in the world i'm not sure if that's think, a good one if like yeah that's yeah take that yeah, definition no, no, I, I, run with I, I, it. I think i i think it's fascinating i and just the reading i did before uh we met i learned loads as well so uh reading about is it kimberley crenshaw who was yeah. the original academic who who first coined the term and also a black um, woman like people have forgotten black, yeah, that absolutely. she was the one that coined it as well it's like intersectionality this and if there was a like a pound <laughs> for each time like someone said kimberley crenshaw i'm sure she'd be yeah. like a trillionaire or like said intersectionality yeah. she'd be a trillionaire but then because people just forget and invisibilize her work yeah. like it's just like intersectionality is great but continue well, I was just going to say for anyone who's, who's listening, who like me knew very little, her YouTube video, that's uh, her TED talk is fantastic. It's a great way in. It's what, 15 minutes and a really great way of, of understanding intersectionality. But thinking about, like picking up on your point about identity, and I, I think it's really important that everyone uh, does some work understanding their own identity, because I think otherwise they're reacting to their their layers, their masks that they've put up, because we all have masks. I mean, for instance, I'm always encouraging people in work to look at the different people they are within their own authentic self, because I'm different with my partner, I'm different with my dog, I'm different with my sister, I'm mm. different with different friends. And we have that flex within us, but often we don't recognize it. So I encourage people to do that. But I think if we don't really understand who we are and, and all aspects of our humanity, then when other people are coming saying, I'm very different from you around intersectionality, we need to change this. I think people put barriers up because they haven't done the work exploring themselves. I did a course and I was working with, I uh, had a session for about an hour with a female engineer and a big multinational engineering company. And I had to, as part of the process, I was doing a dummy interview with her for to move up to the next level in leadership within her business. And it was quite dry. It was very professional. It was very serious. So then we stopped that. And I said, so what else are you interested in? What, what else is going on in your life? And it turned out she was the prospective parliamentary candidate for a key London seat for one of the major political parties. So we talked about that. Absolutely. We talked about that. She was a completely different person because she was talking about her passion, her politics, going to her core. And so then I fed back what it felt like on the receiving end. She said, Gosh, yeah, I'm completely different. So then we tried to have the interview about the engineering job, but with some of the energy and personality that she had from the politics. And it was completely different. And we had a chat about it. And she said, I think essentially, as a woman in an engineering business, I've made a decision many years ago that I need to be this type of person. And I think the more flex people can show about so you start off with honest with what your baseline is, I suppose, your identity, and then find out where you can be flexible within that that 
that can help because then you're true to yourself and then you're mm -hmm. more open to other other identities that are you're encountering in work i, I feel like i've honestly never heard a white man say what you have just said <laughs> so i'm really interested and like interested as to like how you kind of find yourself in that like line of work which is so like reflective and so like think, compassionate and like empathetic i think most actors or hopefully good actors i hope i'm a good actor who knows uh, i saw I think, your show real so, yes yes I, i've seen it i think i think you need to be empathetic because if you're asked to play somebody then you have to you have to defend that person even if that person has done horrible crimes you have to understand where they're coming from and of course as a result you don't just think oh this person's a murderer you then have to think why are they murderers so what was their life experience what sort of abuse what experience in their life led to them behaving in that sort of way so it it forces you to go back and try and understand and i suppose i don't know i suppose partly when i was at school i had that slight outsider status because i was gay but not out obviously no certainly not in the 80s schools are different now but i'm not sure how different boarding schools are i don't know so i i think from a very very early age i started thinking how do i walk how do i speak how do i hide essentially and so that was me covering my identity i remember i was thinking recently when i was about 10 when everyone started getting into pop music i remember having a conscious thought should i like female pop singers because i should be attracted to them or should i like male pop singers because they sing songs about girls and it it sort of floored me because i couldn't work it out and Uh, yeah, no tears, please. But I suppose it's a little bit sad that I, as a 10-year-old, I was having to process this. How do I fit in and hide? To be safe. And I suppose, yeah, to be safe, exactly. And I suppose that hopefully gives me some empathy, you know, for what it may be like to be a person of colour. Although I can just walk down the street and be a white man who went to public school. So that gives me a lot of privilege. I don't have to wear my sexuality on my sleeve. So I recognize that's completely different. But I suppose my final point, what I was saying is that I became an actor, I think, because at school, because I was already hiding or, or using a different, slightly different version of my identity, I was observing other people as well and seeing how they were. So it made me focus on other people, maybe just, mm. and I'm an introvert and maybe that comes from that. It's about guarding, it's about protecting. So I asked some of my friends on Instagram, like what questions I should ask you. And one of oh. them was, what is your star sign? I'm an Aries. Oh my God, same. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so yeah. what, does, what do you think Aries gives you then? So I think Aries gives me like the power to just be really direct. I think I'm very good at standing up for people and just being the voice for stuff. And I also, I just don't take a lot of rubbish also because like Aries is like impatient. It's ready, straight, you know, like I have things to do. And I, I like that. Um, and also as like an organizer, like there's just so many things that need to be done. Yeah. And I genuinely enjoying my work because I feel like for some reason the universe or God or whatever has given me like the capacity to be able to understand people's experiences and then also go on to then like defend or to fight for other people as well as myself which is something that I really like appreciate about Aries life and also and just how the rage the rage <laughs> yeah uh, mine of course is filtered through that thing of being nice uh, but yes i definitely have that yeah i'm i'm i think i'm very i am very driven listen to mm -hmm. me that's british is it so british i, I think am, i'm I think driven I'm yeah i'm probably I am driven, driven. Uh, and i think uh, so how do you use the aries thing to challenge people so if somebody is 
questioning your identity or, or challenging you? How do you confront that or, or deal with it? So initially, this has been like a really huge learning journey for me because I think just as like a woman, I was socialized to be you know, nice and understanding and to make space for people always. And when I initially started like organizing, that just did not get me anywhere. I remember there was one time that I went to this like retreat for like an economics thing with just all these other white men. And like this, like maybe 50 year old man just started shouting at me being like, who do you think you are? Like, why do you think you can speak like that? And I remember just being like, whoa, like that's just really horrible. And then initially I used to really internalize it and be like, whoa, well, maybe I shouldn't have said it, but actually, no, like that's not okay. And I'm kind of, and for me, it's actually, I've had to use the Ariesness to kind of recognize that like I am on quite a different path, which is can be lonely because especially when you hold truth to power, most people don't like you and most people aren't <laughs> willing to listen to you because they are scared. And like, I think for me, I'm really used to turning my own fear of like the future, my own fear of the unknown into something which motivates me to be able to be actually like, you might not understand now and you might be acting out of hurt, but ultimately like, I know that the just future that we're all working for is actually going to come and you're going to have to fix up and it actually doesn't have to rely on me listening to you telling me that I don't know and also just I don't care if you don't think I don't know because I know and like I think also Ariesness has really taught me how to just like believe in myself so that even if other people are like no that's wrong which a lot of people say because you know whiteness or like masculinity like the fragility of it is just what you were saying like when we are scared we shut down other people instead of actually bringing up the part of us that is scared and I think Ariesness helps me to navigate that and also like I just get over things pretty quickly I think I mean I still think about that man and I'm just like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I think because essentially, because I've done so many workshops on, on feedback and encouraging people to give clear, concise, um, specific feedback, and things like that helps because if you can take the emotion out of it, because clearly that man was having an emotional reaction yeah. to you f- for whatever reason, uh, and and it's difficult but as human beings to hang on to your identity and go, I'm not going to react emotionally to that, but I may say to you, when you said that, the impact on me was. You know, when you said X, the impact on me was Y, mm-hmm. just so it's clear. And it may take him, it may take him 10 minutes to process that. It may take him 10 years, but uh, that's all you can do, isn't it? You can't yeah. let other people affect you or, or throw you off course, and I And it's suppose. like, go do that at your own house, you know, go and cry in the toilet like the rest of us, you know, don't be like shouting at people. It's so uncalled for. And like... I've been also thinking about like trauma as well, like you were saying, because like everyone is traumatized, irrespective of your race or your gender. Like we live under a society which really creates just traumatic experiences for people where people feel really unsafe. And it's interesting, like how managing those things as like someone who does feel unsafe, but then also holding because I really like what your work is doing because you're actually doing the reflective work so other people don't have to reflect to understand you. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of white scared men actually tend to just expect other people to understand them rather than actually doing the reflective, empathetic yeah. work. So I just and that's, think that's what I, I really learned when I was working with this black theatre company is that it's not black people's jobs to explain their life experience to white people because it's just not so that's a given that's their lived experience everyone has a lived experience and if you don't get it then do more work to understand it because you can't deny it because that's how people feel and what have your biggest challenges been do you think in the work that you do 
I don't know, like I'd say like the invisibilization of my work and my labor a lot of the time. Mm. So for example, I was working in like an NGO and I did like, you know, I started my own like racial justice program at like 21. I was managing my own work and I was the least paid member of staff, you know, and I was going to speak to other people who were paid like maybe five times more than me. And it isn't even just to do with pay, but then just like the recognition of, my time and my labor and my work. And I also find that like, it's really difficult managed because you know, like black people are just invisibilized and infantilized. So then if I go into spaces, like what if the white guy, like I do workshops as well sometimes. And if I'm with like a white person, people will speak to that person and not speak to me, even though I'm the one who organized it and like did all the work. And it's just, that's the most annoying thing. I I see things like, I see things like that on a gender perspective. So a lot of the work I do is role play and, and a team of us will go in and we'll all play, say three different characters. So the delegates have to meet the project manager, the CEO, and then a team member. And because of the way the timetable works, we all have to place the characters. And the number of times a colleague of mine who's a woman will go and play the CEO. And then I meet them later on as a team member. And we talk about the CEO. And I talk about the CEO being a woman. And they talk about the CEO being a man. And Mm -hmm. and they've met my colleague who is a woman. And and women do this as well. It's astonishing the number of times it happens. And it's like they think, oh, I need to make the assumption that the CEO is a man, even though they've had a meeting with this real, in inverted commas, CEO. It's it's incredible. It's, it's astonishing. So, and it's just like, you know, like the blind spots that people have and stuff. But like, I think for yeah. me, I'm realizing that I don't need to wait for people to acknowledge me. Like I acknowledge myself. And this is why right. I just really, I'm kind of moving away from organizing to make people realize things. At the moment, I'm organizing to build power in my community. Mm. So I've recently st- uh, I'm co-founded this fund for black people who are working in racial justice. So actually, how can I redistribute the resources to those yeah. communities as opposed to making people realize stuff about like racism and yeah I'm kind of that's been my challenge but I'm kind of making it into something else what about you well I, I think I I'm nowhere near as talented as you at making things happen that's for sure uh and so I'm I'm in awe of all these things you're doing these programs it sounds fantastic but what I was thinking about is I, I suppose how thinking about identity and, and how you we can have open discussions about it. You made me think about, I did a workshop with four or five people, sort of people with leadership potential within a, a big telecommunications company. Uh, and two of the ladies were women and they were black women. And this process on this course was that I had to ask them certain questions about themselves and their work, video them and then play it back. And then we look at how people's, what people's body language is doing and the, the choice of words they use and things like that. And we had a really interesting discussion with these two ladies saying that every time they work into, walk into a room, they have to assess who's in the room and they have to decide who they are. And because as people of color, people react to them and particularly as women as well. And one of the ladies that I was working with gave me very short, very clipped answers, lots of smiles. And it was very difficult because the impact was that she didn't seem authentic. But I, rightly or wrongly sensed it wasn't for me to give her that feedback because I didn't know what her working life was like being a black woman. And I suppose my question to you is, what should I have done? Should I have said you're coming across as inauthentic, my fear, or should I have just left it? 
we had a discussion about how she could mm -hmm. be open and I gave some feedback but I didn't give the core moment of feedback. Mm. And to be honest, I feel like she probably like was protecting herself as well because I think yeah. a lot of the time when like black women especially are authentic they got get labeled as angry or mean yeah. or violent and I feel like she was doing what she needed to feel safe in that moment and I think yeah. you did well in just like not highlighting that I mean like and it sounds like you also did like the reflective understanding of how to actually hold that space for her without putting her on the spot so yeah sounds like that was a good call I suppose so I I, I suppose it just occurred to me I, I'm I'm not looking for recognition but I it's just it's interesting how I suppose as a white man how how do I and people like me let people have free identity and not feel that they're having to change their identity too much to fit into parameters that they haven't had a part in building I suppose mm -hmm. but that's, that's the work you're doing isn't it yeah and I feel like it sounds like the work that you're doing is kind of leading to that and like lots of the experiences that you have with those people are actually teaching you a lot and like I really liked what you were saying earlier about as well like you know you did that play and it's so rare for a white man to be surrounded by a majority of black people and for you yeah. to be in that position I think is like such a, a real learning experience for you and it sounds like you've really you're really absorbing that learning and I hope like yeah I hope that like learning is as fruitful as it sounds like well I was, I was blessed because the director Dawn Walton was so great and so political a strong political black woman and the writer Janice Hocker, the writing was brilliant. And you talking about black women being labelled as aggressive, whatever. Sorry, I don't mean as dismissive, aggressive or, or angry, whatever. My character in the play basically loses, loses, I wouldn't say a swear word, loses his th stuff uh, and says <laughs> to this woman, this black woman who is just is being very clear about who she is and what she needs and he calls her aggressive and intimidating. And I learned so much because we did the play for three weeks at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, which is a very diverse community. Mm. And the reaction from people in the audience when I called this woman aggressive and intimidating when she hadn't been aggressive and intimidating was incredible, the reaction. And uh, mm. it was a although he was a very unpleasant character, it was fascinating to experience mm. uh, and try to understand what was going on in his head because he was scared and he was angry because things are changing mm. and he d he's not prepared to educate himself as to why things need to change, mm. I suppose. I'm excited to hear as well, because like now coronavirus, nothing will be the same, hopefully. I hope nothing is the same ever again. Like what is like a change that you see or like you're really looking forward to or like you see as happening? And yeah, what's something that is exciting you about like this new normal? I hate the word normal, this new vision, because yeah. it's like a really visionary time, to be honest. It is. Uh, and obviously, putting aside the fact it's a global pandemic and it's horrendous, I think you're right. I think things are changing. I think work patterns are changing. I think more people are going to work from home. I think people have rediscovered uh, lots of things about their life that they may have lost. And I think that's really important. So you rediscover the identity of being with your family as opposed to just mm. always being at work. Um, what am I, I like that as an identity change? as well, because it is like an, like being family and community orientated is like a really huge part of like people's identity but under capitalism it's like minimized and like just 
pushed aside so i like that you brought that up oh great well i and i think i read someone on twitter saying you know uh, this lady was saying who knew that my husband was one of those guys who says you know can we circle back around or whatever because she all of a sudden <laughs> partners are hearing people having business conversations in the office or whatever in the best spare bedroom uh and i think hopefully those things will bleed together so people will have to bring some of their home identity into their workplace because those tend to be warmer and more engaging and hopefully more mm. truthful to who they are and hopefully we will value things a bit better i suppose and we'll listen more because mm -hmm. there's only so much telly we can watch so we need to we need to actually listen to each other rather than keep listening to watching telly uh how about you what what changes are you hoping to um, see um i'm really hopeful to see like just a lot of like the amazing activists that i know just being able to look after themselves because I think quarantine it's been a lot of work but also there's just time to be at home to have a routine to like I don't know do yoga in the morning and just look after yourself and I feel like so many people have had the chance to do that for the first time for me anyway like I've never been that person Aries life I'm on the go all the time that I just forget <laughs> that for example I need to exercise or I need to have a smoothie for breakfast this is all new to me <laughs> and like that would have not have happened but without quarantine and I'm just really hopeful for yeah like how people are just going to come out with all their actual self-care and I really liked it because it's like self-care that you couldn't avoid like I feel like everyone's having really like um challenging like mental health stuff that's coming up that would have normally been avoided by going out or you know going to like do things that like just not being in your home and like not being in your body and I hope that like quarantine means that more people are living more embodied lives and they just I don't know people take naps people have yeah. three meals a day just three meals a day I hope that's my change okay this is my answer I hope <laughs> that in the future, post-quarantine, people have an identity based off of having three meals a day. Yeah. That's it. Because, <laughs> because um, we make better decisions when we're actually, when we're eating. Mm -hmm. I saw a study, I, I can't quote the person who did the study, but it was a study of uh, Israeli parole boards. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've seen this. And there's a graph, and it basically proved that the parole board was less favourable to people being released just before lunch or before a tea break. Oh, I think I saw um, that as well with judges as well, like the yeah. US as well. So once people have eaten something, they feel better and they're more favourable, which mm -hmm. is terrifying if you think they're making decisions about people's lives. But, it's so scary. But I think, like you were saying, I think people taking more time, people eating properly. Um, if people then have taken had time to reflect during this terrible mm -hmm. time about themselves, then pick up what we were talking about earlier hopefully they're going to be more open to other people. So they've let down some of those walls that have been built up to protect themselves because we, we all have things about ourselves that we don't like mm -hmm. and we put things in front of us to protect us. And they can often be aggressive things or confrontational things because we don't want people to see what we perceive as a weakness inside. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully people are going to let those walls down and we're going to be listening more. That's yeah, and also like you haven't seen your friends or anyone really in such a long time so that you're actually able to listen and be yeah. present with people because you're like, mm. oh my God, friends, people. It's actually <laughs> such a, yeah, I'm really like looking, for, even though it's been horrible and no one wants to be stuck at home forever, especially me, but I'm really hopeful <laughs> that like there's like good things that happen as well and especially with all the black lives matter like um yeah movements as well like i hope that the world that we walk into is a one that actually is recognizing what it means to 
stand up for racial justice and not just yeah. in like performative ways but in like internal and external work as well yeah and before you go mm. i want to ask you um who if you could spend a day as one other person who would that person be one other person i think i would be soja boy um i really okay. love soja boy i think he's He's just. Um, I'm he's, showing my ignorance. Is he a rap artist? He's a rapper. You know, he's like he did um, Soldier Boy. I'm tell so him. sorry. I'll send you. Oh one, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he does the. You know that. Ooh, crank that soldier. Ooh, he's that, <laughs> he does that, and I, I really like him. He's like he basically he made his music, um, but then because he didn't want to upload it to iTunes or whatever because of like how they treat like black artists and they take a mm. huge cut, so he basically. He shared his own music through his own label at like 16. And like he made like wow. such a good, like he's still music is still like, he owns all the like proceed, like the profit from his records. And also he said that one time someone tried to like come and like um, shoot him in his house. And he single-handedly set, apparently took down like five people. And I just thought it just didn't happen, but I love the bullshit. So that's right. me. What about you? <laughs> you love his strength. Yeah, I love his strength. Um, why did I ask this question? Because I've got to answer <laughs> it myself. Um, I don't know. I, I I suppose I'm really, what I'm really fortunate is in my acting world, I get to play other people the whole time. So it's, it's my job. So I get to experience that. But the one thing I don't get to experience is being somebody of a different gender uh, or gender identity or, or somebody of a different race. So without picking anybody, just that, anybody. They don't have to be famous, just somebody who has a different life. Because as we said earlier, I think right at the start, it's impossible for me to fully understand what someone else's lived experience is, but maybe for one day I could. And that, hopefully, if everyone could do that, that would change cool. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Freaky Friday. Have you ever seen Freaky Friday? I, that's my favourite film and metaphor. <laughs> right, yeah. I've only seen the original. I saw the film from the 70s, the Jodie Foster one. Oh, yeah, I love Jodie um, Foster. I'd want to be yeah. Jodie Foster. Oh, OK. I'll be Jodie Foster as well. There you go. OK, cool. Let's all be Jodie Foster. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. really, really lovely to meet you and chat to you, you too. honey. Thank you. It's all the been best. really wonderful. Thanks for all the great knowledge as well. But yeah, I, I absolutely echo that. And good luck. Keep fighting. You too. I'll find you on Twitter. Yeah, do. All right. Bye. Is it really possible to understand the lived experience of another person? That's the question at the heart of this conversation and at the heart of Noni's work and Richard's work. They come from very different backgrounds and have different professions, but what they do have in common is this need for empathy, this need for fully immersing themselves into the lives of others uh, through various means, and one of which is extensive research. So Noni says that plays a big part in her work. But Richard also points out that there are two types of actors, one that intuits or one who intuits their roles and the other camp of actors that really relies on extensive research like himself. So really understanding the context, the broader context of issues and the background of these issues. How important is that to you, Christian, when, for example, when you hire someone or in your business decisions? Well, first of all, I had a little bit of a flashback to my childhood. Um, so maybe to share that personal story, when I was in elementary school, very curious about history. But what was a little bit disappointing, when you're in school, you always learn it like a spotlight. So you learn specific dates and, you know, the Romans do something, nothing else on the planet is happening. So there's nothing happening in China. You don't even talk about it. 
And I was always curious as a child, what's happening on the other side of the planet? And you didn't get any information on that. And if you look on a lot of developments across the globe, it's always a chain reaction. So there are interconnections, etc. And that's becoming more and more a powerful tool for us also for our work with 431 as a company builder to make sense of specific connections. So the creating of patterns, and that's something she mentioned, she's interested in researching patterns and making sense out of patterns, I think is very crucial. But it's also on a organizational level, like you mentioned, when I hire people or engaging or meeting new potential partners, it's the same way. You, you get to know someone, you get a business card, and it's like a spotlight. You, you get to know this person. And, and she basically said it's all about social dynamics. So what happened to that person before you meet the person? And that's, I think, a very interesting angle to take with us from this episode. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but perhaps not even by the pages that are in it, but also all of the pages and the stories that are not even in the book that are left out. Absolutely. I think that there's more to explore and I think more to understand. So I think that was a rather insightful episode of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. So let's watch out for further episodes you can find on every platform. I am very delighted for the further discussions with you, Tim, and the further beautiful minds we invite. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.